You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we're looking together at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. You're going to find this on page 1031 of the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. My grandfather played football at Drake University, which is in Des Moines, Iowa, in case you don't know. I remember as I grew up hearing him tell stories of playing Notre Dame, which was coached at that time by Newt Rockne. He spoke of going against one of the most famous backfields in college football history. I quote, Quarterback Harry Stuldrer, halfbacks Jim Crowley and Don Miller, and fullback Elmer Layden achieved football immortality following Notre Dame's 13-7 victory over Army on October 18, 1924. Grantland Rice, a sports writer for New York Herald Tribune, penned what has become a now famous line in sports journalism, quote, Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. And from that time, those men were known as the four horsemen of Notre Dame. So popular that they posed for the press while in uniform on the backs of four horses. And the sports writer likened the football prowess of those men to the apocalyptic judgment that we've just read about in Genesis, Revelation 6. Of course, there's no comparison, but it shows the influence of John's vision 
because the apostles saw in God's right hand a scroll documenting all of human history. All the designs and methods of providence were written in the scroll and secured by seven seals. Everything that unfolds from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the consummation of history was in that scroll. And the record of judgments upon sinners and the blessings of salvation upon saints were included. And if this scroll had remained sealed, God's overarching plan would never have been realized. John despaired, you remember, since no one was found worthy until Christ stepped forward. The four living creatures and the 24 elders said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. The myriads upon myriads of angels echoed, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And amid the thrill and the excitement of the heavenly worship, Jesus took that massive scroll and he began to open its seals and to execute the work of executing the purpose of God. And with each successive opening, a new and more severe woe was unleashed. The first four woes were represented by the aforementioned riders upon their horses. The four horsemen of the apocalypse galloped forth in solemn judgment. Each time a living creature would say, come, a horse and a rider was dispatched to execute the plan of God. They were powerful supernatural beings with chaos and destruction in their wake. And of course, the imagery is drawn from the prophetic ministry of the prophet Zechariah, which we read earlier. Four chariots pulled by horses of differing colors patrolling the earth to punish the nations. The first chariot had a red horse, the second a black horse, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Because God is jealous for his people Israel, whom the pagan nations had oppressed. And just as in Zechariah's vision, so here God sends them out to execute judgment. A dual purpose is served, to punish the unbelieving world and to purify the believing church. And John sees the first horseman dispatched, and white stands for conquest, I believe. A white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And the sight of this rider would have struck terror into the heart of any Roman citizen. You see, the empire's most feared enemy was the ancient Parthian archers on their horses. And fresh in their memory were the recent wars in which the Parthian wars defeated Rome. Their cavalry included the sacred white horses, which all the readers would then have understood. And the triumphant figure of this mounted bowman on a white horse equaled conquest. Now, some identify this first rider with Christ on a white horse conquering through the gospel. Because later in chapter 19, John saw him called faithful and true sitting on a white horse. And since a white horse rider there is Jesus, well, they argued that it must be Jesus here. But we need not identify the two simply because both are on white horses we will find that the first four trumpets and the first four bowls represent parallel judgments. So it seems unlikely here that the first rider would be distinguished from the other three. 
As a matter of fact, as Leon Morris says, the four horsemen must surely be taken together and they all indicate destruction, horror, and terror. The first of the four horsemen is a chilling figure symbolizing the lust of military conquest and he rides on a white horse to demonstrate his victorious march through mankind. With a crown and a bow, he goes forth to bring strife and conflict to a godless world. But let us not miss the implicit teaching of Christ's absolute sovereignty here. We find this in the phrase, a crown was given to him. The Lord gave it to him. And the rider is under the complete control of the reigning Savior, who has been given all authority on heaven and earth. So Jesus oversees and he overrules every movement of the right rider of conquest. But then John sees a second horseman dispatched in red, stands for bloodshed. Like the first, the second rider goes forth in response to the angel's command. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And so with this striking imagery, this rider is pictured as the personified bloodshed. The specific woe with which he's associated is national and international strife. In this world, during this inter-advental period, the first advent, Christ coming, the second advent, Christ coming, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And this will characterize human experience in a world that rejected God. Estimates suggest that for 362 days of the year, at least, there is a conflict going on somewhere in the world. Experts believe there have only been 250 years of peace in the 3,400 years of documented history. There are currently at least 27 wars ongoing in which every year people die by the tens of thousands. So following the white horse of conquest, we find rides the bright red horse of bloodshed. And it suggests that the lust of the eye leads to the lack of peace and prosperity. This red horseman is given a great sword to symbolize in the Old Testament judgment by war. And for obvious reasons, red is the color most often associated with bloodshed. Second Kings 3 gives us an example In the days of Elisha, when the Moabites arose, they saw the water opposite them as red as blood. In our solar system, the red planet named Mars was done so for the Roman god of war. In this country, we've enjoyed relative peace for a long time. That's a blessing. But where there is no peace, people are set against each other and they kill one another. And this is one of the ongoing judgments against a world that has turned its back upon God. John sees a third horseman dispatched and the color black stands for famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And very seldom is one judgment not followed by another judgment that is worse. This 
third horseman represents the terrible woes of famine, of shortages. And here we see the ghastly figure of hunger personified, holding scales in his hand. Starvation, as you may know, is a horrific and painful way to die. It is slow, and it is a lingering death. The prophet Jeremiah describes the hideous effects of this terrible plight in chapter 4 of Lamentations. He says, Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. At least Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction was short and swift. This one is prolonged. It's like being on the rack for weeks and months at a time, and some have described it as dying by inches. The pair of scales in the rider's hand are meant to symbolize the shortage of food because in the ancient world, when food was scarce, it was rationed and carefully measured. In Ezekiel 4, speaking of the famine, he says, Your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, and water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, from day to day you shall eat and drink. When there's abundance, there's no measuring. When there's scarcity, it's called for weighing. And a gloomy voice from the midst of the living creatures makes this very point. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Barley is cheaper than wheat and three quarts of barley is enough to sustain a family. But in families with many children, as we have here, most, if not all of them, would inevitably die. So again, we see the severity of God's judgment on a rebellious world. But then John sees the fourth horseman. He's dispatched, and pale green stands for death. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. So on this fourth horse sat the king of terrors, which is death by name. And he's colored pale green as the personification of decay and putrefaction. He is often shown as a skeletal figure carrying a large scythe, wearing a cloak with a hood, as we know, the Grim Reaper. And John sees him mounted on a pale green horse as the embodiment of mortality. And this is the most shocking and the most appalling of all four. It's the source of every obituary that's ever been published. The ultimate punishment for sin, the satisfaction of unyielding justice. Because as God said, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death is followed by Hades, which in the ancient world was the place of the dead. And this is not the first time that these two are linked. Elsewhere, they are named as allies. In Psalm 6, for example, In death there is no remembrance of you, 
in Sheol, who will give you praise? Sheol standing for Hades. It's a grisly and it's a fearsome tandem wreaking havoc on the totality of mankind, death. Ecclesiastes 3, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. All is vanity. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Generation follows generation in a seemingly never-ending cycle as the fourth horseman rides across the earth. And so this fourfold expression of judgment is the idea drawn from the prophets. Ezekiel 14 is one example. There the prophet says, when God punishes, no one can deliver. Thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. So don't you see? God has a variety of punishments with which to execute his judgments. The Bible's perspective is that these woes are disastrous acts of judgment. Experience proves that they are inflicted and endured daily in this, our world. Sometimes it's with such intensity that up to a fourth of the population dies. It certainly wasn't a fourth, but COVID was a perfect example. When war and sword and famine converge, then death gallops victoriously. And we must not forget that death and Hades are under the sovereign dominion of the throne in heaven. Their reign and influence over human history is long and it's sad and it's full of pain. And ultimately, these two enemies will be thrown into the lake of fire. So at last, they will end death and Hades. Jesus Christ will fling them into oblivion. But the fact that John saw four horsemen suggests a completion of woes. Four is one of the numbers in the Bible, as you know, that symbolizes universality and completeness. Isaiah 11, the Messiah will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, from everywhere. Proverbs 30, three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. So these four judgments are universal. It's over the world, and they're complete, the full wages of sin. We found that the four living creatures represented all creation and life, and the four horsemen represent the universal suffering and death of mankind. You have it right here. The four horsemen of Notre Dame were nothing like these woes. So from these punishments, let's better appreciate the seriousness of sin. Sin is opposed to God, who is infinitely good and absolutely holy, thrice holy. Sin opposes the good of man and all the good in general. It's a universal evil. Jeremiah Burroughs is right. He says, sin is the evil of all other evils, the very venom and poison of all other evils whatsoever. So evil is sin, it calls forth the cruel and uncompromising horsemen of the apocalypse. It is serious evil. It demands serious thought, sin. 
It brings serious consequences. Jesus declares, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why, Jesus? Because of sin. And sin is the reason why the very Son of God himself endured such terrible suffering. When all the sins of all the elect were heaped upon him, he felt and he borne the full weight of God's wrath. And that penalty for which the riders were personifications were endured by our Savior. So how great must be that love that compelled him to suffer so horribly. That cross on which Christ died was the exclamation point to the seriousness of sin. Have we fully appreciated his work in accomplishing our redemption? Have we wholly understood the significance of his substitutionary death? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I want you to think of his agony. I want you to consider his torment. And I want you to just ponder his abandonment. And then for a moment, consider the seriousness of sin. All of it he endured for the joy set before him, namely our eternal salvation. So that's the first point. Secondly, I think we should rejoice in the praise of God's justice evoked by these four horsemen. You know something, all of God's attributes are glorious and worthy of exercise and exhibition. All of his attributes. His love and his grace were demonstrated at the cross where Jesus bore our sins. And divine justice is no exception. It's a glorious attribute. Our God is glorious in his unbending justice. There are times, aren't there, when every fiber of your being cries out for justice. Punish evil. Some crimes are so wicked and they're so destructive that we long to see justice satisfied. Human judges are often ignorant and incompetent or just plain corrupt. But you know something? God is a glorious judge. He's perfectly righteous and he will make all things right. Psalm 98, let the sea roar. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? Because he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. How often in Scripture does the Holy Spirit extol the justice of God Almighty? Deuteronomy 32 is a perfect example. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And through the coming ages, God's perfect justice will be on continually dis- continual display. The enemies of Christ will be endlessly punished, and the friends of Christ will be forever blessed, all because his justice was on display at the cross of Christ. But then third, let's draw comfort from the fact that these judgments are sent by Christ. 
You see, the Lord Jesus not only commands the kingdom of grace, but he also commands the providence of God. I form light and create darkness, he says. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Amos agrees by saying, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So Jesus is in control of strife and war and famine and pestilence and, yes, death and Hades. He's in control. At the resurrection, he received all authority to control and conquer all of our enemies. So take heart in knowing that wherever we see these evils, they're doing the bidding of our king. The reigning Christ will employ these four horsemen as agents in executing his purpose. And for the sake of his kingdom, they serve to judge the world and to sanctify the church. Nothing in this seemingly chaotic world is outside of his sovereign control. All the suffering and the hardship and death, none of it happens by way of chance. Christ ordains them all, and he employs them all to carry out his redemptive and judicial plan. That's why David says, it's good for me that I was afflicted. Why? Well, that I might learn your statutes. You see, afflictions are overruled as means of spiritual good. They're Christ's workmen on our hearts to pull down that innate pride. You struggle with it, and so do I. He employs them as such and turns them into blessings and benefits. And so amazing is he that he would concern himself in our good by the use of these means. Count it all joy, my brethren, says James, when you meet trials of various kinds. Everything his does regards, everything he does regards some eternal glorious purpose for my soul and for yours. Everything. And it is only ignorance or forgetfulness that leads us to complain against him. My hero John Flavel says, Christians have two sorts of goods, the goods of the throne and the goods of the footstool. The goods of heaven or the goods of earth, the movables or the immovables. If God has secured the immovables, never let my heart be troubled at the loss of the movables. Finally, and briefly, let's give thanks for the infinite wisdom of Christ and his care for the church. Through very judgments he inflicts on the world, he sanctifies his people because the same blazing rays of the sun can either harden clay or melt wax. With some, the trials of life will harden their hearts. That's what happens. With others, they'll melt their souls. The difference lies in the presence and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and our sufferings and difficulties are designed by Christ to make us more holy. At the consummation, the Lord Jesus will have a chaste and blameless bride, and out of jealous love for her purity, he uses trials to test her and refine her, to adorn her as a bride prepared for her husband. Suffering is difficult, let's be honest. But the four horsemen show that Christ uses it for our good. Every hardship, every disappointment, every affliction, every calamity has a redemptive purpose. And so we have the liberty of Christianity, freedom from the evil of afflictions, from the sting of death, 
from the victory of the grave and from everlasting damnation. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering passage. There are some striking figures that you have revealed, and yet we understand that Christ is in control of all of it. We thank you for bringing us into fellowship with Christ, for the Spirit giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that you'll use whatever you see fit to sanctify this, your bride. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.